Chapter Twenty Five of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter Twenty Five. Love me, love my dog. The only interest that honest people can take in the fate of rogues is in their detection and punishment. The reader, then, will be so far interested in the fate of Mr. Chamfort as to feel some satisfaction at his being safely lodged in Newgate. The circumstance which led to this desirable catastrophe was the anonymous letter to Mr. Vincent. From the first moment that Marriott saw or heard of the letter, she was convinced, she said, that Mr. Chamfort was at the bottom of it. Lady Delacour was equally convinced that Harriet Freke was the author of the epistle, and she supported her opinion by observing that Chamfort could neither write nor spell English. Marriott and her lady were both right. It was a joint, or rather a triplicate, performance. Chamfort, in conjunction with the stupid maid, furnished the intelligence which Mrs. Freke manufactured and when she had put the whole into proper style and form, Mr. Chamfort got her rough draft fairly copied at his leisure, and transmitted his copy to Mr. Vincent. Now all of this was discovered by a very slight circumstance. The letter was copied by Mr. Chamfort upon a sheet of mourning paper, of which he thought he had carefully cut the edges, but one bit of the black edge remained which did not escape Marriott's scrutinising eye. "'Lord bless my stars, my lady!' she exclaimed. "'This must be the paper—I mean, may be the paper—that Mr. Chamfort was cutting a choir of, the very day before Miss Portman left town. It's a great while ago, but I remember it as well as if it was yesterday. I saw a parcel of black jags of paper littering the place, and asked what had been going on and was told that it was only Mr. Chamfort who had been cutting some paper, which, to be sure, I concluded my lord had given to him, having no further occasion for, as my lord and you, my lady, were just going out of mourning at that time, as you may remember. Lord Delacour, when the paper was shown to him, recognised it immediately by a private mark which he had put on the outside sheet of a division of letter-paper, which, indeed, he had never given to Chamfort, but which he had missed about the time Marriott mentioned. Between the leaves of this paper his lordship had put, as it was often his practice, some bank-notes, they were notes of but small value, and when he missed them he was easily persuaded by Chamfort that, as he had been much intoxicated the preceding evening, he had thrown them away with some useless papers. He rummaged through his writing-desk in vain, and then gave up the search. It was true that on this very occasion he gave Chamfort the remainder of some morning paper, which he had no scruple, therefore, of producing openly. Certain that he could swear to his own private mark, and that he could identify his notes by their numbers, etc., of which he had luckily a memorandum, Lord Delacour, enraged to find himself both robbed and duped by a favourite servant, in whom he had placed implicit confidence, was effectually roused from his natural indolence. He took such active and successful measures that Mr. Chamfort was committed to jail, to take his trial for the robbery. 
To make peace for himself, he confessed that he had been instigated by Mrs. Freak to get the anonymous letter written. This lady was now suffering just punishment for her frolics, and Lady Delacour thought her fallen so much below indignation that she advised Belinda to take no manner of notice of her conduct, except by simply returning the letter to her with Miss Portman's, Mr. Vincent's, and Lord and Lady Delacour's compliments and thanks to a sincere friend who had been the means of bringing villainy to justice. So much for Mrs. Freak and Mr. Chamfort, who, both together, scarcely deserve an episode of ten lines. Now to return to Mr. Vincent. Animated by fresh hope, he pressed his suit with Belinda, with all the ardour of his sanguine temper. Though little disposed to fear any future evil, especially in the midst of present felicity, he was aware of the danger that might ensue to him from Clarence Hervey's arrival. He was therefore impatient for the intermediate day to pass, and it was with heartfelt joy that he saw the carriages at last at the door, which were actually to convey them to Oakley Park. Mr. Vincent, who had all the West Indian love for magnificence, had upon this occasion an extremely handsome equipage. Lady Delacour, though she was disappointed by Clarence Harvey's not appearing, did not attempt to delay their departure. She contented herself with leaving a note to be delivered to him on his arrival, which, she still flattered herself, would induce him immediately to go to Harrogate. The trunks were fastened upon the carriages, the Imperial was carrying out, Marriott was full of world of business, Lord Delacour was looking at his horses as usual, Helena was patting Mr. Vincent's great dog, and Belinda was rallying her lover upon his taste for the pomp, pride, and circumstance of glorious travelling, when an express arrived from Oakley Park. It was to delay their journey for a few weeks. Mr. Percival and Lady Anne wrote word that they were unexpectedly called from home by blank. Lady Delacour did not stay to read by what or by whom. She was so much delighted by this reprieve. Mr. Vincent bore the disappointment as well as could be expected, particularly when Belinda observed, to comfort him, that the mind is its own place, and that hers, she believed, would be the same at Twickenham as at Oakley Park. Nor did she give him any reason to regret that she was not immediately under the influence of his own friends. The dread of being unduly biased by Lady Delacour, and the strong desire Belinda felt to act honourably by Mr. Vincent, to show him that she was not trifling with his happiness, that she was incapable of the meanness of retaining a lover as a pis aller, were motives which acted more powerfully in his favour than all that even Lady Anne Percival could have looked or said. The contrast between the openness and decision of his conduct towards her, and Clarence Harvey's vacillation and mystery, the belief that Mr. Harvey was, or ought to be, attached to another woman, the conviction that Mr. Vincent was strongly attached to her, and that he possessed many of the good qualities essential to her happiness, operated every day more and more strongly upon Belinda's mind. Where was Clarence Harvey all this time? Lady Delacour, alas, could not divine. She every morning was certain that he would appear that day, 
and every night she was forced to acknowledge her mistake. No inquiries, and she had made all that could be made, by address and perseverance, no inquiries could clear up the mystery of Virginia and Mrs. Ormond, and her impatience to see her friend Clarence every hour increased. She was divided between her confidence in him and her affection for Belinda, unwilling to give him up, yet afraid to injure her happiness, or to offend her by injudicious advice and improper interference. One thing kept Lady Delacour for some time in spirits, Miss Portman's assurance that she would not bind herself by any promise or engagement to Mr. Vincent, even when decided in his favour, and that she should hold both of him and herself perfectly free till they were actually married. This was according to Lady Anne and Mr. Percival's principles, and Lady Delacour was never tired of expressing directly or indirectly her admiration of the prudence and propriety of their doctrine. Lady Delacour recollected her own promise to give her sincere congratulations to the victorious knight, and she endeavoured to treat Mr. Vincent with impartiality. She was, however, now still less inclined to like him from a discovery which she accidentally made of his being still upon good terms with odious Mrs. Luttridge. Helena, one morning, was playing with Mr. Vincent's large dog, of which he was excessively fond. It was called Juba, after his faithful servant. Helena, my dear, said Lady Delacour, take care, don't trust your hand in that creature's monstrous mouth. I can assure your ladyship, cried Mr. Vincent, that he is the very quietest and best creature in the world. No doubt, said Belinda, smiling, since he belongs to you. For you know, as Mr. Percival tells you, everything animate or inanimate that is under your protection, you think, must be the best of its kind in the universe. But really, Juba is the best creature in the world, repeated Mr. Vincent, with great eagerness. Juba is, without exception, the best creature in the universe. Juba the dog, or Juba the man, said Belinda. You know, they cannot be both the best creatures in the universe. Well, Juba the man is the best man, and Juba the dog is the best dog in the universe, said Mr. Vincent, laughing, with his usual candour at his own foible when it was pointed out to him. But seriously, Lady Delacour, you need not be in the least afraid to trust Miss Delacour with this poor fellow, for, do you know, during a whole month that I lent him to Mrs. Luttridge at Harrogate, she used constantly to let him sleep in the room with her, and now, whenever he sees her, he licks her hand as gently as if he were a lapdog, and it was but yesterday, when I had him there, she declared he was more gentle than any lapdog in London. At the name of Luttridge, Lady Delacour changed countenance, and she continued silent for some time, Mr. Vincent attributing her sudden seriousness to dislike or fear of his dog, took him out of the room. "'My dear Lady Delacour,' said Belinda, observing that she still retained an air of displeasure, "'I hope your antipathy to odious Mrs. Luttridge does not extend to everybody who visits her.' Tout au contraire, cried Lady Delacour, starting from her reverie, and assuming a playful manner. 
I have made a general jail delivery of all my old hatreds, and even odious Mrs. Luttridge, though a hardened offender, must be included in this act of grace. So you need not fear that Mr. Vincent should fall under my royal displeasure for consorting with this state criminal. Though I can't sympathise with him, I forgive him, both for liking that great dog and that little woman, especially, as I shrewdly suspect, that he likes the lady's E.O. table better than the lady. E.O. table? Good heavens! You do not imagine, Mr. Vincent. Nay, my dear, don't look so terribly alarmed. I assure you, I did not mean to hint that there was any serious improper attachment to the E.O. table. Only a little flirtation, perhaps, to which his passion for you has doubtless put a stop. I'll ask him the moment I see him, cried Belinda. If he is fond of play, I know he used to play at billiards at Oakley Park, but merely as an amusement. Games of address are not to be put upon the same footing with games of hazard. A man may, however, contrive to lose a good deal of money at billiards, as poor Lord Delacour can tell you. But, I beseech you, my dear, do not betray me to Mr. Vincent. Ten to one I am mistaken, for his great dog put me out of humour. But with such a doubt upon my mind, unsatisfied, it shall be satisfied. Lord Delacour shall make inquiries for me. Lord Delacour shall make inquiries, did I say. Will, I should have said. If Shamford had heard me, to what excellent account he might have turned that unlucky shall. What a nice grammarian a woman had need to be, who would live well with a husband inferior to her in understanding. With a superior or an equal, she might use shall or will as inaccurately as she pleases. Glorious privilege! How I shall envy it you, my dear Belinda! But how can you ever hope to enjoy it? Where is your superior? Where is your equal? Mr. Vincent, who had by this time seen his dog fed, which was one of his daily pleasures, returned, and politely assured Lady Delacour that Juba should not again intrude. To make her peace with Mr. Vincent, and to drive the E.O. table from Belinda's thoughts, her ladyship now turned the conversation from Juba the dog to Juba the man. She talked of Harriet Freke's phosphoric obeah woman, of whom, she said, she had heard an account from Miss Portman. From thence she went on to the African slave trade, by way of contrast, and she finished precisely where she intended, and where Mr. Vincent could have wished, by praising a poem called The Dying Negro, which he had the preceding evening brought to read to Belinda. This praise was peculiarly agreeable, because he was not perfectly sure of his own critical judgment, and his knowledge of English literature was not as extensive as Clarence Hervey's, a circumstance which Lady Delacour had discovered one morning when they went to see Pope's famous villa at Twickenham. Flattered by her present confirmation of his taste, Mr. Vincent readily complied with a request to read the poem to Belinda. They were all deeply engaged by the charms of poetry, when they were suddenly interrupted by the entrance of Clarence Hervey. The book dropped from Vincent's hand the instant he heard his name. Lady Delacour's eyes sparkled with joy. 
Belinda's colour rose, but her countenance maintained an expression of calm dignity. Mr. Hervey, upon his first entrance, appeared prepared to support an air of philosophic composure, which forsook him before he had walked across the room. He seemed overpowered by the kindness with which Lady Delacour received his congratulations on her recovery, struck by the reserve of Belinda's manner, but not surprised or displeased at the sight of Mr. Vincent. On the contrary, he desired immediately to be introduced to him, with an air of a man resolute to cultivate his friendship. Provoked and perplexed, Lady Delacour, in a tone of mingled reproach and astonishment, exclaimed, "'Though you have not done me the honour, Mr. Hervey, to take any other notice of my last letter, I am, I am to understand, I presume, by the manner in which you desire me to introduce you to our friend Mr. Vincent, that it has been received?' "'Received? Good heavens! Have you not had my answer?' cried Clarence Hervey with a voice and look of extreme surprise and emotion. Has not your ladyship received a packet? I have had no packet. I have had no letter. Mr. Vincent, do me the favour to ring the bell, cried Lady Delacour eagerly. I'll know this instant what's become of it. Your ladyship must have thought me— And as he spoke, his eye involuntarily glanced towards Belinda— "'No matter what I thought you,' cried Lady Delacour, who forgave him everything for this single glance. "'If I did you a little injustice, Clarence, when I was angry, you must forgive me, for, I assure you, I do you a great deal of justice at other times.' "'Did any letter or any packet come here for me? Inquire, inquire,' said she, impatiently, to the servant who came in. No letter or packet was to be heard of. It had been directed, Mr. Harvey now remembered, to her ladyship's house in town. She gave orders to have it immediately sent for, but scarcely had she given them when, turning to Mr. Harvey, she laughed and said, A very foolish compliment to you and your letter, for you certainly can speak as well as you can write, nay, better, I think, though you don't write ill, neither but you can tell me in two words what in writing would take half a volume. Leave this gentleman and lady to the dying negro, and let me hear your two words in Lord Delacour's dressing-room, if you please, said she, opening the door of an adjoining apartment. Lord Delacour will not be jealous if he finds you tete-a-tete -tete with me, I promise you. But you shall not be compelled, you look— I look, said Mr. Hervey, affecting to laugh— as if I felt the impossibility of putting half a volume into two words. It is a long story, and—and and I must wait for the packet, whether I will or no. Well, be it so, said Lady Delacour. Struck with the extreme perturbation into which she was thrown, she pressed him with no further raillery, but instantly attempted to change the conversation to general subjects. Again she had recourse to the dying negro. Mr. Vincent, to whom she now addressed herself, said, For my part I neither have nor pretend to have much critical taste, but I admire in this poem the manly, energetic spirit of virtue which it breathes. From the poem an easy transition was made to the author, 
and Clarence Hervey, exerting himself to join in the conversation, observed that this writer, Mr. Day, was an instance that genuine eloquence must spring from the heart. Cicero was certainly right, continued he, addressing himself to Mr. Vincent, in his definition of a great orator, to make it one of the first requisites that he should be a good man. Mr. Vincent coldly replied, this definition would exclude too many men of superior talents to be easily admitted. Perhaps the appearance of virtue, said Belinda, might on many occasions succeed as well as the reality. Yes, if the man be as good an actor as Mr. Hervey, said Lady Delacour, and if he suit the action to the word, the word to the action. Belinda never raised her eyes whilst her ladyship uttered these words. Mr. Vincent was, or seemed to be, so deeply engaged in looking for something in the book which he held in his hand, that he could take no farther part in the conversation, and a dead silence ensued. Lady Delacour, who was naturally impatient in the extreme, especially in the vindication of her friends, could not bear to see, as she did by Belinda's countenance, that she had not forgotten Marriott's story of Virginia St. Pierre, and though her ladyship was convinced that the packet would clear up all mysteries, yet she could not endure that even in the interim poor Clarence should be unjustly suspected, nor could she refrain from trying an expedient, which just occurred to her, to satisfy herself and everybody present. She was the first to break silence. To do ye justice, my friends, you are all good company this morning. Mr. Vincent is excusable, because he is in love, and Belinda is excusable, because, because, Mr. Hervey, pray help me to an excuse for Miss Portman's stupidity, for I am dreadfully afraid of blundering out the truth. But why do I ask you to help me? In your present condition you seem totally unable to help yourself. Not a word. Run over the commonplaces of conversation. Weather, fashion, scandal, dress, deaths, marriages. Will none of these do? Suppose, then, you were to entertain me with other people's thoughts, since you have none of your own unpacked, forfeit to arbitrary power, continued her ladyship, playfully seizing Mr. Vincent's book. I have always observed that none submit with so good a grace to arbitrary power from our sex as your true men of spirit, who would shed the last drop of their blood to resist it from one of their own inconsistent creatures, the best of you. So read this charming little poem to us, Mr. Hervey, will you?" He was going to begin immediately, but Lady Delacour put her hand upon the book and stopped him. Stay, though I am tyrannical, I will not be treacherous. I warn you, then, that I have imposed upon you a difficult, a dangerous task. If you have any sins unwhipped of justice, there are lines which I defy you to read without faltering. Listen to the preface. Her ladyship began as follows. Mr. Day, indeed, retained during all the period of his life, as might be expected from his character, a strong detestation of female seduction. 
happening to see some verses written by a young lady on a recent event of this nature, which was succeeded by a fatal catastrophe, the unhappy young woman, who had been a victim to the perfidy of a lover, overpowered by her sensibility of shame, having died of a broken heart, he expresses his sympathy with the fair poetess in the following manner. Lady Delacour paused, and fixed her eyes upon Clarence Hervey. He, with all the appearance of conscious innocence, received the book without hesitation from her hands, and read aloud the lines to which she pointed. Swear by the dread avengers of the tomb, by all thy hopes, by death's tremendous gloom, that ne'er by thee deceived the tender maid, shall mourn her easy confidence betrayed, nor weep in secret the triumphant art, with bitter anguish rankling in her heart. So may each blessing which impartial fate throws on the good, but snatches from the great, adorn thy favoured course with rays divine, and heaven's best gift, a virtuous love, be thine. Mr. Harvey read these lines with so much unaffected, unembarrassed energy, that Lady Delacour could not help casting a triumphant look at Belinda, which said, or seemed to say, you see, I was right in my opinion of Clarence. Had Mr. Vincent been left to his own observations, he would have seen the simple truth, but he was alarmed and deceived by Lady Delacour's imprudent expressions of joy, and by the significant looks that she gave her friend Miss Portman, which seemed to be looks of mutual intelligence. He scarcely dared to turn his eyes towards his mistress, or upon him whom he thought his rival but he kept them anxiously fixed upon her ladyship, in whose face, as in a glass, he seemed to study every thing that was passing. "'Pray, have you ever played at chess since we saw you last?' said Lady Delacour to Clarence. "'I hope you do not forget that you are my knight.' "'I do not forget it, I assure you. I own you as my knight to all the world, in public and private. Do not I, Belinda?' A dark cloud overspread Mr. Vincent's brow. He listened not to Belinda's answer. Seized with a transport of jealousy, he darted at Mr. Hervey a glance of mingled scorn and rage, and, after saying a few unintelligible words to Miss Portman and Lady Delacour, he left the room. Clarence Hervey, who seemed afraid to trust himself longer with Belinda, withdrew a few minutes afterwards. "'My dear Belinda,' exclaimed Lady Delacour, the moment he was out of the room, "'how glad I am he is gone, that I may say all the good I think of him. In the first place, Clarence Hervey loves you. Never was I so fully convinced of it as this day. Why had we not that letter of his sooner? That will explain all to us. But I ask for no explanation, I ask for no letter, to confirm my opinion, my conviction, that he loves you. On this point I cannot be mistaken. He fondly loves you. He fondly loves her? Yes, to be sure. I could have told you that news long ago, cried the dowager Lady Boucher, who was in the room before they were aware of her entrance. 
They had been both so eager, the one listening and the other speaking. "'Fondly loves her,' repeated the dowager. "'Yes, and no secret, I promise you, Lady Delacour.' And then, turning to Belinda, she began a congratulatory speech upon the report of her approaching marriage with Mr. Vincent. Belinda absolutely denied the truth of this report, but the dowager continued, "'I distress you, I see, and it's quite out of rule. I am sensible to speak in this sort of way, Miss Portman. But as I am an old acquaintance, and an old friend, and, and an old woman, you'll excuse me. I can't help saying I feel quite rejoiced at your meeting with such a match.' Belinda again attempted to declare that she was not going to be married, but the invincible dowager went on. "'Every way eligible, and every way agreeable. A charming young man, I hear, Lady Delacour. I see I must only speak to you, or I shall make Miss Portman sink to the centre of the earth, which I would not wish to do, especially at such a critical moment as this. A charming young man, I hear, with a noble West Indian fortune, and a noble spirit, and well-connected, and passionately in love, no wonder. But I have done now, I promise you. I'll ask no questions, so don't run away, Miss Portman. I'll ask no questions, I promise you. To ensure the performance of the promise, Lady Delacour asked what news there was in the world. This question, she knew, would keep the dowager in delightful employment. I live quite out of the world here, but since Lady Boucher has the charity to come to see me, we shall hear all the secrets worth knowing from the best authority. Then the best piece of news I have for you is that my lord and my lady Delacour are absolutely reconciled, and that they are the happiest couple that ever lived. All very true, replied Lady Delacour. True, repeated Lady Boucher. Why, my dear Lady Delacour, you amaze me. Are you in earnest? Was there ever any thing so provoking? There have I been contradicting the report wherever I went, for I was convinced that the whole story was a mistake and a fabrication. The history of the Reformation might not be exact, but the Reformation itself your ladyship may depend upon, since you hear it from my own lips. Well, how amazing! How incredible! Lord bless me! But your ladyship certainly is not in earnest, for you look just the same, and speak just in the same sort of way. I see no alteration, I confess. And what alteration, my good Lady Boucher, did you expect to see? Did you think that, by way of being exemplarily virtuous, I should, like Lady Blank, let my sentences come out of my mouth only at the rate of a word a minute, like minute drops from off the eaves? Or did you expect that, in hopes of being a pattern for the rising generation, I should hold my feature in penance, immovably, thus, like some of the poor ladies of Antigua, who, after they have blistered their faces all over, to get a fine complexion, are forced, while the new skin is coming, to sit without speaking, smiling, or moving muscle or feature, lest an indelible wrinkle should be the consequence. Lady Boucher was impatient to have this speech finished, for she had a piece of news to tell. 
Well, she cried, there's no knowing what to believe or disbelieve. One hears so many strange reports. But I have a piece of news for you that you may all depend upon. I have one secret worth knowing. I can tell your ladyship, and one your ladyship and Miss Portman, I'm sure, will be rejoiced to hear. Your friend, Clarence Hervey, is going to be married. Married? Married? cried Lady Delacour. Ay, ay, your ladyship, may look as much astonished as you please. You cannot be more so than I was when I heard it. Clarence Hervey, Miss Portman, that was looked upon so completely, you know, as not a marrying man, and now the last man upon earth that your ladyship would suspect of marrying in this sort of way. In what sort of way? My dear Belinda, how can you stand this fire? said Lady Delacour, placing a screen dexterously to hide her face from the dowager's observation. Now only guess whom he is going to marry, continued Lady Boucher. Whom do you guess, Miss Portman? An amiable woman, I should guess, from Mr. Hervey's general character, cried Lady Delacour. Oh, an amiable woman, I take for granted. Every woman is amiable, of course, as the newspapers tell us, when she is going to be married, said the dowager. An amiable woman, to be sure, but that means nothing. I have not had a guess from Miss Portman. From general character, Belinda began, in a constrained voice, do not guess from general character, my dear Belinda, interrupted Lady Delacour, for there is no judging in these cases, from general character, of what people will like or dislike. Then I will leave it to your ladyship to guess this time, if you please, said Belinda. You will neither of you guess till doomsday, cried the dowager. I must tell you, Mr. Hervey's going to marry, in the strangest sort of way, a girl that nobody knows a daughter of a Mr. Hartley. The father can give her a good fortune, it is true, but one should not have supposed that fortune was an object with Mr. Hervey, who has such a noble one of his own. It's really difficult to believe it. So difficult that I find it quite impossible, said Lady Delacour, with an incredulous smile. Depend upon it, my dear Lady Delacour, said the dowager, laying the convincing weight of her arm upon her ladyship's, Depend upon it, my dear Lady Delacour, that my information is correct. Guess whom I had it from? Willingly, but first let me tell you that I have seen Mr. Hervey within this half-hour, and I never saw a man look less like a bridegroom. Indeed, well, I've heard, too, that he didn't like the match. But what a pity, when you saw him yourself this morning, that you didn't get all the particulars out of him but let him look like what he will. You'll find that my information is perfectly correct. Guess whom I had it from? From Mrs. Margaret Delacour. It was at her house that Clarence Hervey first met Mr. Hartley, who, as I mentioned, is the father of the young lady. There was a charming scene and some romantic story about his finding the girl in a cottage, and calling her Virginia something or other but I didn't clearly understand about that. However, this much is certain, that the girl, as her father told Mrs. Delacour, is desperately in love with Mr. Hervey, and they are to be married immediately. Depend upon it, you'll find my information correct. Good morning to you. 
Lord bless me, now I recollect, I once heard that Mr. Hervey was a great admirer of Miss Portman, said the dowager. The inquisitive dowager, whose curiosity was put upon a new scent, immediately fastened her eyes upon Belinda's face, but from that she could make out nothing. Was it because she had not the best eyes, or because there was nothing to be seen? To determine this question she looked through her glass, to make a clearer view, but Lady Delacour drew off her attention, by suddenly exclaiming, "'My dear Lady Boucher, when you go back to town, do send me a bottle of concentrated anima of quassia.' "'Ah, ah, have I made a convert of you at last?' said the dowager, and, satisfied with the glory of this conversion, she departed." "'Admire my knowledge of human nature, my dear Belinda,' said Lady Delacour. "'Now she will talk, at the next place she goes to, of nothing but my faith in anima of quassia, and she will forget to make a gossiping story out of that most imprudent hint I gave her about Clarence Hervey's having been an admirer of yours.' "'Do not leave the room, Belinda. I have a thousand things to say to you, my dear.' "'Excuse me at present, my dear Lady Delacour. I am impatient to write a few lines to Mr. Vincent. He went away in a fit of jealousy, and I am glad of it.' "'And I am sorry for it,' said Belinda. "'Sorry that he should have so little confidence in me as to feel jealousy without cause—without sufficient cause, I should say, for certainly your ladyship gave pain by the manner in which you received Mr. Hervey.' "'Lord, my dear, you would spoil any man upon earth. You could not act more foolishly if the man were your husband. Are you privately married to him? If you be not, for my sake, for your own, for Mr. Vincent's, do not write till we see the contents of Clarence Hervey's packet.' "'It can make no alteration in what I write,' said Belinda. "'Well, my dear, write what you please but I only hope you will not send your letter till the packet arrives. Pardon me, I shall send it as soon as I possibly can. The dear delight of giving pain does not suit my taste. Lady Delacour, as soon as she was left alone, began to reconsider the dowager's story. Notwithstanding her unbelieving smile, it alarmed her, for she could not refuse to give it some degree of credit when she learned that Mrs. Margaret Delacour was the authority from whom it came. Mrs. Delacour was a woman of scrupulous veracity, and rigid in her dislike to gossiping, so that it was scarcely probable a report originating with her, however it might be altered by the way, should prove to be totally void of foundation. The name of Virginia coincided with Sir Philip Baddeley's hints, and with Marriott's discoveries, these circumstances considered, Lady Delacour knew not what opinion to form, and her eagerness to receive Mr. Hervey's packet every moment increased. She walked up and down the room, looked at her watch, fancied that it had stopped, held it to her ear, ran the bell every quarter of an hour to inquire whether the messenger was not yet come back. At last the long-expected packet arrived. She seized it, and hurried with it immediately to Belinda's room. "'Clarence Hervey's packet, my love! Now woe be to the person who interrupts us!' She bolted the door as she spoke, rolled an armchair to the fire. "'Now for it,' said she, seating herself. 
the devil upon two sticks if he were looking down upon me from the housetop or chamfort who is the worst devil of the two would if he were peeping through the keyhole swear i was going to open a love-letter and so i hope i am now for it cried she breaking the seal my dear friend said belinda laying her hand upon lady delacour's before we open this packet let me speak to you whilst our minds are calm calm it is the strangest time for your mind to be calm but i must not affront you by my incredulity speak then but be quick for i do not pretend to be calm it is not being thank my stars mon métier d'être philosophe crack goes the last seal speak now or for ever after hold your tongue my calm philosopher of oakley park but do you wish me to attend to what you are going to say yes replied belinda smiling that is the usual wish of those who speak very true and i can listen tolerably well when i don't know what people are going to say but when i know it all beforehand i have an unfortunate habit of not being able to attend to one word now my dear let me anticipate your speech and if my anticipation be wrong then you shall rise to explain and i will said she putting her finger on her lips listen to you like hippocrates without moving an eyelash belinda as the most certain way of being heard consented to hear before she spoke i will tell you pursued lady delacour if not what you are going to say to me at least what you say to yourself which is fully as much to the purpose you say to yourself let this packet of clarence hervey contain what it may it comes too late let him say or let him do tis all the same to me because now for the reasoning because things have gone so far with mr vincent that lady anne percival and all the world at oakley park will blame me if i retract in short things have gone so far that i cannot recede because things have gone so far this is the rondo of your argument nay hear me out then you shall have your turn my dear for an hour if you please let things have gone ever so far they can stop and turn about again cannot they lady anne percival is your friend of course can wish only for your happiness you think that she is the thing that's most uncommon a reasonable woman then she cannot be angry with you for being happy your own way so i need not as the orators say labour this point any more now as to your aunt the fear of displeasing mrs stanhope a little more or less is not to be put in competition with the hope of your happiness for life especially as you have contrived to exist some months in a state of utter excommunication from her favour after all you know she will not grieve for any thing but the loss of mr vincent's fortune and mr hervey's fortune might do as well or almost as well at least she may compound with her pride for the difference by considering that an english member of parliament is in the eyes of the world the only eyes with which she sees a better connection than the son of a west india planter even though he may be a protege of lady anne percival 
Spare me your indignation, my dear. What a look was there! Reasoning for Mrs. Stanhope, must not I reason as Mrs. Stanhope does? Now, I will put this stronger still. Suppose that you had actually acknowledged that Mr. Vincent had got beyond esteem with you. Suppose that you had in due form consented to marry him. Suppose that preparations were, at this moment, making for the wedding. Even in that desperate case, I should say to you, you are not a girl to marry because your wedding gown is made up. Some few guineas are thrown away, perhaps. Do not throw away your whole happiness after them. That would be sorry economy. Trust me, my dear, I should say, as I have to you in time of need. Or, if you fear to be obliged to one who never was afraid of being obliged to you, ten to one the preparations for a wedding, though not the wedding, may be necessary immediately. No matter to Mrs. Franks who the bridegroom may be, so that her bill be paid, she would not care the turning of a feather whether it be paid by Mrs. Vincent or Mrs. Hervey. I hope I have convinced. I am sure I have made you blush, my dear, and that is some satisfaction. A blush at this moment is an earnest of victory. Lo, triomphe! Now I will open my packet, my hand shall not be held an instant longer. I absolve you from the penance of hearing me for an hour, but I claim your promise to attend to me for a few minutes, my dear friend, said Belinda. I thank you most sincerely for your kindness, and let me assure you that I should not hesitate to accept from you any species of obligation. Thanks, thanks, there's a dear good girl, my own Belinda. But indeed you totally misunderstand me. Your reasoning... Show me the fault of it. I challenge all the logic of all the Percivals. Your reasoning is excellent, if your facts were not taken for granted. You have taken it for granted that Mr. Hervey is in love with me. No, said Lady Delacour, I take nothing for granted, as you will find when I open this packet. You have taken it for granted, continued Belinda, that I am still secretly attached to him, and you have taken it for granted that I am restrained only by fear of Lady Anne Percival, my aunt, and the world, from breaking off with Mr. Vincent. If you will read the letter which I was writing to him when you came into the room, perhaps you will be convinced of your mistake. Read a letter to Mr. Vincent at such a time as this. Then I will go and read my packet in my own room, cried Lady Delacour, rising hastily with evident displeasure. Not even your displeasure, my dear friend, said Belinda, can alter my determination to behave with consistency and openness towards Mr. Vincent. And I can bear your anger, for I know it arises from your regard for me. I never loved you so little as at this instant, Belinda. You will do me justice when you are cool. Cool, repeated Lady Delacour, as she was about to leave the room. I never wish to be as cool as you are, Belinda. So, after all, you love Mr. Vincent, you'll marry Mr. Vincent. I never said so, replied Belinda. You have not read my letter. Oh, Lady Delacour, at this instant you should not reproach me. 
I did you injustice, cried Lady Delacour, as she now looked at Belinda's letter. Send it, send it. You have said the very thing you ought. And now sit down with me to this packet of Clarence Hervey's. Be just to him, as you are to Mr. Vincent. That's all I ask. Give him a fair hearing. Now for it. End of chapter 25